This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in His power and love even now as you listen. Welcome, guys. Happy, happy New Year to each one of you. So thankful for Ruffin giving us a great uh, New Year's challenge uh, last Sunday on, uh, on New Year's Eve. And today we start a new series here in a new year. We were in 1 Timothy in the fall, and so we are going to be in 2 Timothy this winter and going on into our spring. 2 Timothy is just one of my favorite books of the Bible. It is one of the most encouraging books of the Bible, incredibly passionate, warm, personal. We're going to see all of that as we dig into it today and start our journey through this amazing letter. I want you to open your Bibles this morning to 2 Timothy chapter 1. We're going to walk through these first seven verses of 2 Timothy this morning. We had a great holiday season here at First Baptist. One of the things that we do around the holidays is our, our Lottie Moon Challenge for International Missions. I am so thankful for this church's heart, for missions, your generosity toward missions. We, we set a goal for our Lottie Moon offering, every penny of which goes straight to sending missionaries to the field, sustaining them on the field, right? This is not a part of our church budget. This is above and beyond our church budget, strictly for international missions. And our goal was $60,000, and you guys gave over $72,000 to Lottie Moon. Amen. <laughs> Praise the Lord for that, to God, to God be the glory. And uh, we'll, 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 we won't know until we get to heaven all the ways that our great and sovereign God is going gonna, is gonna to use that. Uh, to bless people around the world, to bring people to himself. 2 Timothy uh, chapter, chapter 1, and uh, we're going to look at verses 1 through 7 this morning as we're, we're introducing 2 Timothy and start our journey together through this incredible letter. Let's look at God's word, dig in together. 2 Timothy chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, for the sake of the promise of life in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my dearly loved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God, whom I serve with a clear conscience, as my ancestors did, when I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day, remembering your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I recall your sincere faith that first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice and now I am convinced is in you also. Therefore, I remind you to rekindle the gift of God that is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but one of power, love, 
and sound judgment. Father, we pray that as we begin to this journey through 2 Timothy, that your spirit would do a work in our lives that only you can do. We've come together today with all kinds of different challenges happening in our lives, burdens that we're carrying. We all have different needs today. And how encouraging to know that you you know every single one of them, even the hairs of our heads are all numbered. You know, you know every life, every need, you're able to, to meet that and do all kinds of amazing, life-changing things through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, right now, we, we do pray that you would give us just complete openness and vulnerability and transparency to what you desire to do in us, that you would do a work through us as we go forth from this place. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Hanley Mool was uh, a great evangelical Anglican uh, pastor in Great Britain in the late 19th, early 20th century. And Hanley Mool once said that he could not read Paul's second letter to Timothy without a mist forming in his eyes. You know, it, it is just one of the most moving documents ever written, 2 Timothy. And so today, what, what I want to do is just kind of introduce the letter to you and sort of set the stage as we walk through these opening verses. These opening verses really just kind of lay a foundation and set the backdrop for what is going to follow in this, this letter. So what do we see in these opening verses? What do we see in this letter as a whole? Well, first of all, 2 Timothy is a personal letter. Let's look at verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will for the sake of the promise of life in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my dearly loved son. And that phrase, my dearly loved son, just captures the heart of 2 Timothy. Because 2 Timothy is a spiritual father the Apostle Paul, writing to his son in the faith, Timothy, a son that he dearly loves. And Paul knows that he doesn't have long to live, and so there's an urgency to this letter. He's pouring out his heart, his, his spiritual son, that he loves so much. Imagine the Apostle Paul sitting down with you, and, and just he knows he doesn't have long to live, so he, he's pouring out. He's like, hey, son, daughter, this is, these, this is the most important thing that I can tell you about life in Christ, about flourishing in Christ, and about passing on the faith to the next generation. That's 2 Timothy. Now, it's interesting because here at the beginning of 2 Timothy, he addresses Timothy as my dearly loved son. If you remember at the beginning of 1 Timothy, he, he, he addressed Timothy as my true son. And that's because Paul's burden 
as he writes 1 Timothy, is to authenticate Timothy to the church at Ephesus. You remember, Timothy is in Ephesus, still is in Ephesus as he receives 2 Timothy. But there's this church in Ephesus torn apart by false teaching and things like that. In 1 Timothy, Paul is authenticating Timothy. He want, he's giving Timothy his stamp of approval, and he wants the church to hear that. And you remember we talked about in 1 Timothy that, yes, it was written to Timothy, but 1 Timothy is also really written to the church at Ephesus. 2 Timothy has a far more um, personal kind of a tone to the to the the letter. And there are a couple of other differences as well between 1st and 2nd Timothy. 1st Timothy is very task oriented. If you remember in 1st Timothy Paul was kind of going from topic to topic. You know, um, here's how you deal with the false teaching that's going on. Here's how I want men to conduct themselves, how women are condu to conduct themselves. You know, here's how you choose uh, elders and, and deacons, and here's their qualifications, and here's how you are to run uh, the ministry to, uh, to, to widows and things like that. It's very, First Timothy, very, very kind of task-oriented because of the nature of it. Second Timothy is, is far more of a heart-to-heart -heart kind of a, a, a letter. All right, so it's, 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 it's warmer in its, in its, in its tone than, than, than First Timothy. Love First Timothy, but Second Timothy, is, is, it's, a, it's a different situation. And that's another thing. Paul's situation has dramatically changed since he wrote 1 Timothy. When Paul writes 2 Timothy, by this point, he is in prison. And it's not the prison that he is in at the end of the book of Acts, where he's sort of under house arrest, and, and he can still see people, and he can kind of conduct his ministry while, even while he's con confined. This is a different prison in, that he's in when he writes 2 Timothy. This is more like a, a, a dark, cold dungeon that he, he is in. Probably the Mamertine prison in, in Rome is where Paul is writing 2 Timothy from. Uh, very severe, horrible conditions that, he, that, he, that he's in. And, and the tone of 2 Timothy is that Paul, Paul knows that he's... He's approaching the end of his life. Nero's persecution of Christians is in full swing, brutal, and, and Paul really knows that he doesn't have long to live, and he, and he didn't. He was going to be martyred soon after he writes these, these words. So it's a very different situation. John Stott says that as you read 2 Timothy, we are to imagine the apostle languishing in some dark, dank dungeon in Rome from which there is no escape but death. His own apostolic labors are over. I have finished the race, he can say. But now he must make provision for the faith after he is gone and especially for its transmission, uncontaminated, unalloyed to future generations. That's 2 Timothy. Now let's check out verse 3 as we begin the body of the letter here. Paul says, I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience 
as my ancestors did, when I constantly remember you in my prayers day and night. Couple of things to note here about verse, verse, verse three. Um, he, he, Paul refers here to his ancestors. This would be his Jewish ancestors. Never forget, Paul is a Jew. And when he talks about his ancestors, I, I serve who, God whom I serve with a clear conscience as my ancestors did. Paul there is referring to Old Testament saints. He's referring to, you know, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and the prophets, all the faithful saints of the Old Testament, his, his Jewish ancestors. And it's very important for us to understand here that Paul, in following Jesus, did not view himself as you know, forsaking Judaism. He believed that Jesus was the fulfillment of the promises of the Old Testament. The word Christ comes from the Hebrew word Messiah. When you see that word Christ in the New Testament, you think Messiah, right? And so Paul did not see himself, you know, as forsaking Judaism. He sees Jesus as the fulfillment of the promises of the Old Testament, right? So um, he's not turning away from the faithful saints of the Old Testament, right? He sees himself as very much in line with that because the Old Testament points to Christ. Um, and this is why there's a very special relationship between Christians and Jews. Our Lord and Savior was a Jew. Our faith, our Christian faith is, is nourished by and rooted in and flows from Judaism. Jesus comes as the fulfillment of the Hebrew scriptures of the Old Testament. And Paul was always keen to remind Gentile believers like us of the, of the fact that, that our faith is, is rooted in Judaism and that we are branches that have been, by God's grace, grafted into that. He says in Romans 11 and verses 17 and 18, he says to Gentile Christians like us, but if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you, right? So as Christians, we should uh, be lovers of the Jewish people. Our world today is filled with hatred of Jewish people. And we see this not only in the Middle East with the brutality of terrorism like Hamas, but we see hatred of Jewish people even on the streets of some of our cities and on the campuses of some of our colleges, but as followers of Jesus, we should love the Jewish people. And we should be supportive of the only Jewish state in the world, the nation of Israel, and pray for Israel. 
and what they're going through now. Now, speaking of prayer, Paul speaks of this next. He says in verse, in verse 3 to Timothy, I constantly remember you in my prayers night and, and, and day. You know, here's Paul in, writing in some of the worst conditions imaginable, but he's not thinking about himself. He's thinking about Timothy, encouraging Timothy. Timothy, I'm praying for you. Night and day, I was visiting with one of our senior saints in the church, Marvin Barnes, recently, and he was in the hospital. And uh, we were we were talking. There's Marvin on his hospital bed, and uh, and you know, I said, always, I, you know, pr- pray, you know, pray, pray for me. And uh, and he's like, Pastor, I pray for you every morning and every evening. <laughs> And then he grabbed my hands and he prayed for me <laughs> right, right there, right? What an encouragement, right? And how encouraging would this have been to Timothy to hear this from his, his, his spiritual father? Let's check out verse 4. He says, remembering your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. Now, again, this takes us into the personal relationship between these two men. Because when he talks about remembering your tears, he's no doubt, he's talking about the last time that he and Timothy were together. And when they parted, Timothy was weeping. Paul was probably weeping too. It just tells us so much about the, 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 the nature of this uh, relationship. We, we talked about this a lot when we introduced uh, 1 Timothy. Now, I'll, I'll recap it briefly, but... The relationship between Paul and Timothy went back to Paul's first missionary journey when he was going through uh, the the town of of, of Lystra, now would be part of of Turkey. And so uh, Timothy uh, and his family lived there in the city of Lystra. In all likelihood, as Paul passed through their town on his first missionary journey, Timothy, his mother, and his grandmother came to faith in Christ. On his second missionary journey, Paul went back through Timothy's hometown, and there he saw Timothy is he's growing in Christ. And Paul was impressed by what the Lord was doing in this young man's life, and so he wanted to pour into Timothy even more. Paul, Paul was always, he always wanted to pour into people so that the, the baton of the gospel would be passed on to the next generation. So he's like, I'm going to pour into Timothy. And he wanted Timothy to accompany him on his journey, which he did, right? And so, again, this is another, our, our, our church, our, our, our vision is disciples making disciples, that is at the heart of 2 Timothy. So Paul said, you know, Paul pours into Timothy, takes Timothy with him, and as Timothy continues to, to grow in Christ, Paul gives him greater and greater responsibilities. And so he entrusts him to go into some very challenging situations, right? The church at Ephesus, which is where Timothy is as this letter arrives to him, That was an incredibly challenging situation. Paul sent him into other very challenging situations like the church at Corinth. 
And he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 17, he writes to the church at Corinth, This is why I have sent Timothy to you. He is my dearly loved and faithful child in the Lord. He will remind you about my ways in Christ Jesus, just as I teach everywhere in every church. So no wonder, with the closeness of this relationship, no, no wonder, Paul says here in verse 4, he says, remembering your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I long to see you. Now, whether that reunion ever happened, we don't know. They might never have seen each other again in this life. But when Paul says, I long to see you, whether they saw each other again on this earth, we know that a reunion did happen. That reunion happened in in heaven. I love what Jonathan Edwards says in one of his greatest sermons about heaven, a world of heaven, a world of love. And in that sermon, Edwards talks about the reunion that Christians are going to have with saved loved ones one day in, in glory. Wouldn't it be wonderful to be reunited with saved loved ones? Jonathan Edwards said this, every gem which death rudely tears away from us here is a glorious jewel forever shining there. Every Christian friend that goes before us from this world is a ransom spirit waiting to welcome us in heaven. There will be the infant of days that we have lost below through grace to be found above. There will be the Christian father and mother and wife and child and friend with whom we shall renew the holy fellowship of the saints, which was interrupted by death here, but shall be commenced again in the upper sanctuary, and then shall never end. There we shall have company with the patriarchs and fathers and saints of the Old and New Testaments. And, and there, above all, we shall enjoy and dwell with God the Father, whom we have loved with all of our hearts on earth, and with Jesus Christ, our beloved Savior, who has always been to us the chief among ten thousands and altogether lovely, and with the Holy Spirit, our sanctifier and guide and comforter, and shall be filled with all the fullness of the Godhead forever. Oh, it's going to be a wonderful reunion. So listen, Paul says, I long to, I long to see you. It might never have happened on this earth, but it was going to happen. One of my mentors in the, the faith, J.C. Mitchell, one of our former pastors here at First Baptist, died of cancer uh, this past summer. And, uh, and in my last phone conversation with him, he called a couple of weeks before, not even a couple of weeks, within a week or so uh, before he died. He called and he knew he was going into the nursing home and into a hospice situation. It wasn't going to be long, but his mind was still super clear. And JC's last words to me before we hung up the phone were, I love you. I'll see you there. I'll see you there, right? That's it, right? That's, that's, what we, that's the reunion with saved loved ones. So whether they saw each other in this, on this earth again or not, we don't know. They were going to see each other again and it was going to be glorious so this is a personal letter second second timothy is a powerful letter 
a powerful letter. Let's check out verse 5. He says, I recall your sincere faith that first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and now I am convinced is in you also. Now again, this takes us into these relationships because Paul knew Timothy's family. He knew his, his mother, knew his, uh, gra- his, his grandmother, um, and Paul is encouraging Timothy by saying, listen, son, you have a great spiritual heritage. Your, your mom and your grandma, they were the real deal. They had an authentic, sincere faith. And you have that too. But now you are responsible to build on that foundation, right? Just like all, you have, if you have a Christian family, listen, you have a blessing beyond price. But you can't just kind of ride, coast on that spiritual heritage. Now, you got to build on that, right? And so that's what he's beginning to talk about in verse 6. Let's look at verse 6. Therefore, I remind you to rekindle the gift of God that is in you through the laying on of my hands. Now, in, in 1 Timothy, Paul referred to this gift as well. 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 14. He said there, don't neglect the gift that is in you. It was given to you through prophecy with the laying on of hands by the council of elders. And now in the second letter, here in verse 6, he talks about this gift once again. There had been this event and the elders were there probably in Timothy's home church and Paul was there. There was a laying on of of, of hands, and it became apparent, right? Whether that night was a confirmation of the gift or whether the Spirit confirmed that night that Timothy was given this gift, which, as we talked about in 1 Timothy, was almost certainly a gift of preaching and teaching the Word of God. And this gift, this spiritual gift, had been given to Timothy. So in 1 Timothy, Paul tells him, Don't neglect your gift that's been given to you. Now, in 2 Timothy, he compares that gift to a fire. He says to uh, rekindle the gift of God. You could also translate that as fan into flame the gift of God, right? Or uh, kindle afresh this, this gift. Now, Paul is not implying here that Timothy has allowed the flame to die down. He's not implying that at all. He's simply pointing to the fact that, you know, when God gives you a spiritual gift, you've got to sharpen that. You continue to sharpen that throughout your life by using it, developing it. That's what he's encouraging Timothy to do. And listen, this is a word for each one of us as well. Because if you are in Christ, you have one or more spiritual gifts. If you are a child of God, you are a gifted child. You have been gifted with certain charismata, with spiritual gifts. 
that God wants you to use for building up the body of Christ. You're saved to serve. So are you using your spiritual gifts to build up the body of Christ? Are you using the gifts that God has given you for his glory? To strengthen the body of Christ, to build up the body of Christ? Or are you on the sidelines? Is your gift sitting up on the shelf collecting dust? No, we're to, we're to, we're to, we're to fan into flame whatever gifts God has given to us. And, and maybe you would say, well, pastor, I'm not sure what my spiritual gifts are. Here's what I promise you. First of all, if you will pray and ask God to reveal to you what your spiritual gift is, and at the same time, couple that prayer with getting involved, rolling up your sleeves, and getting involved in the life of the church, and just looking for needs, looking for ways that you can serve, praying, doing that, praying at the same time, doing that with a willing heart, a willing spirit, rolling up your sleeves, and getting involved, listen, you will find your niche. You will discover the gift or gifts that the Spirit of God has given you to serve him for his glory. You will. God's not going to leave you on the sidelines. God, God, God is going to show that to you. And you'll find tremendous fulfillment in using your spiritual gifts for God's glory. This year could be a great year of discovery for you in that respect. Now look at verse 7. He says, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but one of power, love, and sound judgment. Now, this is one of the most famous verses in this letter, and for good reason. It's awesome. I encourage you to memorize verse 7 and use verse 7 to preach to yourself. Preach this to yourself often. Now, what do we see here in verse 7? It's a great verse. We see a negative word, and then we see a positive word, right? The negative one is this. For God has not given us a spirit of fear. Now, two key words there in the first part of verse 7, spirit and fear. First of all, spirit. Scholars debate about whether spirit here refers to an attitude or a disposition, or is Paul referring to the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit? I agree with New Testament scholar Gordon Fee. Paul here is talking about the Holy Spirit. I, I believe you could translate this. You know, when, when God gave his spirit to us, it was not one of fear, right? The Holy Spirit and cowardice don't go together. Now, I believe that it should be translated, that I believe that it's a reference to the Holy Spirit here. Spirit is the Holy Spirit for a couple of reasons. One is that verse 7 is so closely tied with verse 6. Well, what was he talking about in verse 6? A spiritual gift, right? Timothy's gift that was given to him by the Holy Spirit. 
And so I think the immediate context of it suggests that he's referring to the Holy Spirit here. Also, when you kind of widen it out and you look at Paul's other letters, there are a couple of other instances in Paul's writings where he uses sort of the same uh, not but formula that we see in verse 7 here uh, where he's talking about the Holy Spirit. For instance, um, in 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 12, let's look at that. He says there, now we have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who comes from God so that we may understand what has been freely given to us by God. Again, in Romans 8 and verse 15, he says, For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Right. So in here in verse 7, we're seeing the same kind of but not in, in reference to the spirit. And again, he's talking about the issue of fear. Now, that's the second word here. Fear. Sometimes it's translated as timidity. I think that's a little bit too weak. The word here is quite strong. I, I believe the right translation is fear. This is a word, a Greek word that was used in battle context in, in other kinds of literature, right? In the first century. It, it often referred to like a battle, a battle language. And Timothy's in a battle. He's in a battle. You're in a battle. <laughs> We're all in a battle as believe, spiritual warfare. And uh, listen, Timothy was in a situation where he, he could be easily, easily um, dragged down into fear. I mean, he's got all this very challenging situation with the church at Ephesus and dealing with these false teachers and, and the fallout from all of that in the church, you know, there was persecution that was going on from the outside as well. I mean, there were, it's a very difficult, challenging situation. The temptation would have been to cave into fear, fear of people, fear of the difficulty of, of, the, of the situation that he was in. And, and Paul here is like taking him, taking him in, in hand, you know, and saying, son, listen, you know, the, the spirit that God has given you, the Holy Spirit, does not produce fear like that, right? You can't, you can't give in to that. The spirit that God has given us is not one of, 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 of fear. And God says the same to you. This verse says the same thing to me and you. As a child of God, you have no business living in fear. Your father, who loves you with a perfect love, is all-powerful, sovereign, in control of the whole universe and of your life. You have no business living your life in fear. Some of you fear people. The scripture says that is a trap. Proverbs 29 and verse 25 says the fear of man lays a snare. 
but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Some of you fear dying. Well, you know what? If you're not in Christ, you should fear death. You're not ready to die. If you died, if you die apart from Christ, you're going to hell. That's a very rational fear to, to have that if, if you're not in Christ. But if you are in Christ, you know, to fear death, that's, that's a problem. I mean, I've met so many people, and especially, you know, since 2020, that just live their lives in, in fear. We just talked about heaven. <laughs> if you're in Christ, you're ready for heaven. It's a whole lot better than here. And Philippians 1.21 says to live is Christ and to die is gain. You know, if you're a Christian living in fear of, of, of death, I mean, that's a problem. That's a spiritual problem. I mean, some of you live in just fear, constant fear of money issues when your father owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Or you live in fear of, you know, some other challenge or situation in your life that God Almighty could handle with his little pinky. You have no business walking in fear as a Christian. God, that does not come from the Spirit of God. God has not given us a spirit of, of fear. And so when we feel fear coming on, and we all do sometimes, none of us is immune to this. When we feel fear coming on, that's a warning light. The warning light should be going off, you know, and, and we should understand, we should have the discernment to see this is not of the Spirit. Right? This is not the Spirit of God. This is not how the Spirit operates. He doesn't produce fear in us. We're to walk in faith, not in fear. So when, when you start feeling that stuff coming on, that's a warning light. This is not of the Spirit. Right? The only fear that a Christian should be walking in is a healthy fear of Almighty God. Right? God's not giving us a spirit of fear. So that's the negative side of verse 7 than the positive, right? But God has not given us a spirit of fear, but one of power, love, and sound judgment. Now, he mentions three things here that come from the spirit. First of all, power. Christians vastly underestimate the power that is in them because the spirit indwells us. The spirit who raised Christ from the dead is in you. And Paul knew that we would tend to underestimate the power that we have been given. And so he writes things like this in Ephesians 1 and verses 18 and following. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling what is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the mighty working of his strength? He exercised this power in Christ by raising him from the dead. Christian, that power lives in you. It is, it is a power to bear witness 
Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. But you will receive what? Power when the Holy Spirit has come on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Again, in 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 4. My speech and preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. So he's empowered you to bear witness. When you engage with a friend in a, in a, in a conversation about the gospel, you need to understand that conversation is not just kind of about you having to figure out, oh, I got to have exactly the right words and, you know, I got to have everything together in order to share the gospel with, 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 with somebody. No. You just do as Bill Bright said, once said, share Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit and leave the results to God. The pressure is not on you. Just share the good news of Christ and what he's done. And it's the power of the Spirit that opens people's hearts. We can never do that. We can ne- You're just a vessel, right? So be free. Be freed up. Be freed up to just share the gospel and let the Spirit do what only the Spirit can, can do, right? So he's empowered you to bear witness. The Spirit empowers you to live a hope-filled, peace-filled, joy-filled life. Romans chapter 15 and verse 13. Now, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you believe, so that you may overflow with hope by what? By the power of the Holy Spirit, right? So, he gives us power. Second, love. Love. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but one of power, love. The first fruit of the Holy Spirit that Paul gives when he gives us the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 22 and 23 is what? Love. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. First John tells us that love is the mark of the Christian. And then he gives a sound judgment, right? God has not given us a spirit of fear, but one of power, love, and sound judgment. This can also be translated um, as self-control, although it's a different Greek word than what we see at the end of Galatians 5.23. This word in 2 Timothy 1.7 is, it could also be translated as sound-mindedness. Sometimes it is translated as sound mind. Listen, the enemy messes with your mind. Do you know that? (laughs) He messes with your mind. The Spirit of God gives us a sound mind. Now, in a crowd this size, I know that some of you are bound to be struggling with, with mental health issues. And I'm, I'm not, hear my heart, I'm not being dismissive of that at all. Often in those situations, there's a medical component too that needs to be addressed medically. But even then, there's a huge aspect of spiritual warfare in this, folks. Because you have an enemy that hates you. A supernatural enemy that hates you and wants to destroy you. One of the ways that he does that is by playing mind games with us. And so all of this, right, 
points to the fact that we need to be abiding in Christ, walking in the power of the Spirit of God. The Christian life is to be a supernatural life. The Christian life is not about just doing better and trying harder, gritting your teeth and trying to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. No, the Spirit of God, the the Christian life is about walking in the Spirit of God, abiding in Christ, staying connected to Him so that it's His strength, His power. Right, that's working through you. The Spirit is producing. Power, love, self-control, sound, sound, sound-mindedness. Right? Now, the only person who ever walked completely like that is Christ. The rest of us have failed in so many ways in walking like that. Jesus never failed. He never failed. He lived the perfectly spirit-filled life that we could never live. Never sinned. Always walked in the total power and love and sound-mindedness that comes from the Spirit. And for that reason, he could go to the cross And he could take our sins upon himself and die for them and rise from the dead so that we can have eternal life. And when you come to Christ, you get his spirit. But for some of you, within the hearing of this message right now, there's no spirit because there's no Christ. You need Christ as your Savior and Lord. Turn to him and trust him today. Others of you, as believers, as you look to a new year, you need to understand that you've got to do 2024 not in your strength, but in the power of the Spirit of God. The Spirit is God's empowering presence in your life. The Christian life is a supernatural life. It's an adventure. It's a walk with Almighty God. You're letting the Spirit lead you. The Spirit guide you. The Spirit empowering you every step of the way. You don't have to do life alone anymore. You do it with God. And the power and presence of His Spirit. Let's pray together. So Father, we pray that you would draw us nearer to you this year than ever before as we walk with you leaning upon you doing doing life leaning upon you abiding in Christ staying connected to you as a branch stays connected to the vine walking in your spirit, so that we're not, we're not walking in fear, we're walking in power and love and self-control with a, with a sound mind. Lord, the enemy seeks to oppress us in all kinds of ways. You are so much greater than him. You are
are so much greater. And so we pray that you would keep us close to you. The power is in you. The protection is in you. Keep us close to you. Draw us near to you. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin, but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1.12, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving father and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with him. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia.